Some time ago, I was having another difficult night of sleeping. I remember waking up at around two, three, and I just kind of tossed and turned for a while, frustrated that I couldn't sleep. Then I tried to do that thing that you shouldn't do, or it's rather paradoxical to do. I was trying to fall asleep. It's not a good idea to try to fall asleep. Those things don't go together, try and sleep. I'd look at the clock and I'd see that a minute had passed and I knew I laid there for a couple hours and I looked and it was now another minute or four. And so I decided to do the, the smart thing. People who have trouble sleeping have gotten advice from psychologists and doctors and the advice is pretty out there, it's pretty known, it's commonplace. You're supposed to lay in bed and try to fall asleep for only 20 minutes. You're training your body that while you're there, you're asleep. And then you get up and then you want to go do something else to tell your mind it's wind down time. Go and do something that is quiet and calming. Read something boring. This isn't time to read the next big action thriller. Or it's not the time to watch television. Or it's not the time to lift weights. It's the time to sit there and just kind of let your body sink in, get bored, go lay back down. So the, here's the thing about stubborn people, <laughs> is that I knew what to do, but I really wasn't going to do it. Anybody else like me? You know what you should do, but sometimes you're just not going to do it. I got up thinking, okay, that's one step. But I saw my phone over to the side, and I just thought, you know what would be a good idea at 3 in the morning? checking my inbox. That'll help me sleep. So I grabbed my phone and I went downstairs to my den like a champion. I'm going to get work done. I turn on the television, something mindless, and I open that inbox. And, you know, I'm scrolling through all of those ads that come through, you know. Like I have to delete them too. It's like something in me. Delete get rid of, make sure I've read it so it doesn't have that little notification. I cannot let Mavis Tire remain open in their ad for more tires while I'm trying to sleep. I've got to clear that out. But then I see the email. And it's one of those emails that it's scary and you can tell because it's written in all caps. You get it in the subject line and your phone manifests arrows in all directions saying, read me, read me, you're going to like what you see in me. And so I said, okay, I'll read you. And I look in to the pit. It was dark out, and it might as well have been dark inside this email. Later, I printed it out. It was nine whole pages long. Somebody, doesn't matter who, was upset. Doesn't matter about what. They really weren't even upset with me. They were just complaining. They were just complaining about everything in their life. This isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. And if I was already struggling with a good, healthy, happy headspace at three in the morning when I'm not sleeping, I was really brought down into the darkness that night. And you know how it is. Things are always worse when it's dark. Things are always a little bit worse before the sun and light come up. You just get swirling around in the mix and mess of worry and anxiety. And here is all this negativity and complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining. And I thought to myself, I know this person. What do they have to complain about? They're still alive. 
They still have breath and health. They've got people who love them. I know where they live. I knew a lot about them, and I thought to myself, aren't they thankful for one bit of their life? No, no, just complaining. And the negativity just kept growing in this email like a snowball rolling down a hill. Now, at some point, I was able to get back to sleep, maybe for a moment or two. I got up and got ready to go to the office to think about my sermon that week and to be inspired to bring a message to the people of God. And as I was driving in the car, I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call my friend and tell him about this email. So I called my buddy up. He's a good guy. And I started saying things like, don't you just hate complainers? I know, I'm not supposed to hate, I'm a Christian, but I mean, complainers really annoy me. I mean, don't they know that no one wants to hear it all the time? Can't they filter it out? Don't they know how to look on the bright side of life? People who complain carry an ugly, dark pall everywhere they go, like Eeyore, or like Mr. Snuffleupagus. Why should their rain cloud rain all over me? These complainers are getting me down. How about you? Anybody caused you misery because of their complaint? In case you hadn't gotten it, I was complaining about complainers. Have you ever wondered why do we complain? I mean, complaining isn't supposedly defined as noting the truth. Like, I have severe knee pain. That's not really a complaint. That's just a matter of fact that you might want to share with your doctor or somebody that you know. But to go on and obsess about it, to make it against you, somehow like it's conspiring on you, or to try to gain a lot of attention with it, that's where these facts become complaints. I read this book this week, and I'm going to probably reference it a lot in sermons coming up, so I brought it to show it to you. It's called A Complaint-Free World. Wouldn't that be nice? Everyone just, just go, ah. Oh. Everyone just please do that. Ah, a complaint-free world. I don't know if we can get there, but here's the reason why this author says we complain. Now, mind you, he takes psychology and technical language, and he likes to put it in digestible bits. So rather like a preacher, he gives us an acrostic so you can remember it. The reasons why people complain can be listed as gripe. See what he did there? G get attention. People complain to get attention. Makes sense. Some people complain to remove responsibility. Okay. Some people complain to inspire envy. You ever heard somebody complain about how, well, how you think they have it really well, but for them it's a burden? Their complaints make you feel bad because they've got it all? Some people complain for power. And lastly, excuse of poor performance. When I read this this week, I thought to myself, power makes a lot of sense. That we complain for power. I see it everywhere. You ever seen somebody who just decides to try their hand at an opinion out loud? Maybe they complain about another group of people or their boss. Or maybe they complain about a neighbor or, dare I say it, the other political party. Once they share their complaint, 
if their neighbor, whoever's standing next to them, agrees, they begin to chime in. They begin to amass power. Oh, yes, now I've got someone on the hook who agrees with me. If I can get more people who can hear my complaint and agree with me, then I will have a mass group of people. And this is a way of building power. But it works much, much more nefarious than that. It's not just getting people of like mind together. No, what happens is we devolve down into the basis part of our biology. You see, we were born in a certain pattern of life, right? We were tribal at one point. We came from a world where we could only have so many relationships. And to this day, I'm told that the human being can really only process about 125 significantly close relationships at a time because we're tribal and we were meant to work together with groups of people. And we were also meant to notice the interloper, to notice the person unlike us because we were competing for resources or for the matter of safety or so on and so forth. But we don't live in a tribalistic age. In the world of culture, added on to the top of our biology, has made it much more complicated. We live in a global society. We are in a cosmopolitan world. And there, last I checked, are more than 125 people that live in Atlanta, Georgia. Amen? And so we have to figure out how to live together, how to get along together, how to make sense of this world together. And if you're Christians, you have to think about how to make God's name known and His kingdom reign together in this place. So people can complain for power, but then there's the next step. And I discovered this in another book that I read recently I like called How Not to Be a Fascist. That's a great book title. I wish I came up with it. How Not to Be a Fascist. And in it, the author makes some really interesting points. You see, how we tend to structure ourselves socially is with the in-group and the out-group. Identify those who are like you and identify those who are not like you. So we naturally do the us-them thing from tribal thinking, but then we assert certain values with it. We, by nature, for whatever reason, imagine that our group, people who agree with us, are innately more intelligent and innately better than the other group. We think we're smarter and we think we're better. This is a proven fact. So, if in my tribe, Reverend Bell, were to steal a candy bar, we're more likely to say, oh, well, it's just a candy bar. Who's it hurting anyway? I mean, it's a generic brand. Or, maybe, you know, Jim gets hangry when he's working on a funeral. We really just, we wanted them to steal the candy bar. We'll, we'll pay for it later. It's okay. We all make mistakes like that. No, no, no. He wouldn't really mean terrible things with it. But, but if somebody in the other group steals a candy bar, we say to ourselves and we say to each other, those godless, moralless idiots, those hypocrites, can you believe it? They talk a big game, but they don't back it up. Oh. They certainly must not have grown up in church or going to vacation Bible school. Let me bring the matter more home and risk offending everyone. 
But don't worry, I'm going to talk about both political parties. We live in the night of politics, I think, in the darkness. And it's amazing to me how so very often we can look at a politician, a leader, and we're supposed to be on the side of the party of family values. Yet, there'll be an affair or worse, there'll be much, much worse stuff coming out of the camp of this one politician. And what we often say is, yeah, I wish he didn't do that. And then we say that to each other, right? But, but to the wider world, we make defense of it. Oh, everyone, God, no one cares about that stuff. Well, you know, I, you, guys, we have to get them elected because if we don't get them elected, then the world's going to end, right? Because they're dumber and they're less moral than us. And, and we make justifications to uh, ignore the things that we say we value the most. Or we have the other side, where one of our uh, elected officials is both... Uh, a part of a church that's against abortion, yet is for abortion, and that's a big deal. And abortion in our country is a big deal. I mean, the, the ethical argument about it has been going on for a long time. And I'm not telling you what to think about it. All I'm making is an observation that whenever this person was asked about where they stand on it, they simply said, whoa, that's a, uh, that's a private issue. But see, it can't be a private issue. It simply can't be a private issue consistently in our world. It, the, 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 the stakes are too great for that one, but here's the worst thing since they claim Christ, is that there is no such thing in Christianity as my public moral life and my private moral life. I follow the kingdom here, and I follow the kingdom here, or I'm failing. It's not a matter of opinion that God is king. If we believe that, it's what we believe. You can't have it both ways. Oh, I tell you all that to paint a greater picture of what you already know. The world feels rather dark. It seems as though intelligent, well-educated, meaningful people find ways to separate from each other, to demonize each other, and not talk to each other, not really talk to each other, talk past the that and talking points and ideologies. That's, that's not talking. It feels awful. And then it feels worse when you read gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. As you come to church today and you find something true about the heart of God that is part of the heart of Jesus, that's the heartbeat of the kingdom, and it's meant to be our heart. And I want to define it as the gospel of welcome. Jesus says, you welcome somebody, you're wel welcoming me. He tells his disciples, if you welcome a prophet, you're going to have the honor of a prophet. If you welcome the righteous, you're going to have the welcome of the righteous. You're going to be afforded the rights and privileges thereof. It kind of makes sense to us. Like We know that it's important for us to welcome people of a well-lived life. People who've inspired us and are better angels to rise up and to do great things in the world. We treat them with a certain sense of respect. We meet them and we praise them for it. If we meet a dignitary, and I would really hope that if you met the president on either side of your political aisle and voting thing, you would actually act respectful. We treat these people with a certain sense of honor because that's 
what the office has, but it's also, I would dare argue, what God has told you to do because people are made in the image of God and they're valuable to God and God sent his son to die for them and they're a concrete, irreplaceable person just like you, worthy of your time. They're not stupid. They're not poor intended. It's disagreements. I remember when we had Japanese exchange students my whole life, basically, you know, I had two, two a year my whole life. And, and you know, I come from a, a family that had a rather big bias against the Japanese. My grandfather fought in the Navy, with the Navy, in the World War II, and there was a whole lot of anti-Japanese sentiment. And it's, it's amazing how these cultural exchanges really change the, the attitudes of people in the family. That, that's another story for another time, but I can't tell you how impressed I was year after year after year of having these Japanese students come stay with us and they would come into our home and treat, they treated us as if we were royalty. And then us Americans, we were like, oh goodness, we, uh, we, I guess we need to bow back and we'll bow even lower. We don't know what to do. And, and then, oh, they gave us gifts. Oh my gosh, they gave us, what, what can we give them? And next thing you know, we're trying to honor them they deserve it, no matter what country or town they're from. We honor them like they honored us, but we all get that. It's that last bit that actually I think should really strike us in our moral heart this morning. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, basically. Whoever welcomes one person with a cup of cold water welcomes me. This isn't the dignitaries of the prophets. This isn't the righteous and the people who are upright. This is the people who can't put together enough resources for a cup of water. Yet if you welcome somebody in such need, you are welcoming Christ. Our Gospel is nothing if not a Gospel of welcome. And Jesus tells us repeatedly, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it for Me. When I think about that cold cup of water, I think about the poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty. What does it say? Give me your tired. Give me your poor. Give me your wretched. Huddled masses. It's such a beautiful invitation to a world to an old world where you could not rise above your station or you really couldn't easily. But here in America, you can. You see, that made Americans dreamers. That's the actual genius of America. We became the idealist dreamers. My worry is that we're exchanging our dreamers, our idealism with practicalities and pragmatism. Because when I ask that question, how are we doing when we look at that poem? I remember just a year or two ago, people arguing about what it meant and many people asserting that it was only an open invitation to white people in Europe. As far as I can tell in all my research, it's, it's not. It's an open call to the world. You can come here and dream it. You can come here and be it. Well, it's not really actually my job here to ask you how America's doing. We know that we do feel the darkness. And why not? Why not? Because we're told that we're the city on the hill, not 
Not a nation, not a people, but the church. So the light should come from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, in us, out to the world. And so, church, how are we doing? How are we doing with the gospel of welcome? Do we make room on the pews for people who might even intimidate us? Do we have space at our lunch tables for folks who are in desperate need? Do we want to include people we've never invited out who never get an invitation out? That's just the social stuff. What about we changing the way we think about how we are here working for those who are poor and orphaned and widowed to we work with, we are part of. They are part of us and we are part of them. Because in a truly welcoming gospel, we open arms in all to love. Because we are all, as the Pope said, part of the one human family of God. How are we doing? I'll leave you with this. This is a Hasidic story that I read this week that I just loved. And perhaps all I should have done is read it to you. Rabbi Pinchas asked his students how one recognizes the moment when the night ends and the day begins. Is it in the moment that the light, it's light enough to tell a dog from a sheep? One of the pupils asked. No, the rabbi answered. Is it the moment when we can tell a date palm from a fig tree? The second asked. No, that's not it either, the rabbi replied. So when does morning come then, the pupils asked. It's the moment when we look into the faces of any person and recognize them as our brother or sister. Rabbi Pinchas said, until we are able to do that, it is still night.